Talks podcast, where we present compelling narratives about entrepreneurs, innovators, and dreamers. Blue Talks, brought to you by Stambic IBTC. Today, we'll be speaking on education and the opportunities that exist on the fallout from COVID-19. Education is one of the industries that has been severely impacted by the closures or the, what you call it, the lockdown measures put in various cities all around the world. Schools had to close their terms abruptly. They left a lot of pupils and students to self-help and you know, parents have become substitute teachers overnight. And real teachers have been forced to, you know, have to upskill themselves, especially in this part of the world, becoming tech savvy overnight. You know, and the school administrators themselves had to innovate, essentially just watch their schools go out of fashion if there's anything for lack of a better term, in that sense. And the government is also in a big dilemma as to what they would do, trying to ensure that there's a balance between the different social strata and the kind of quality of education that the students in general receive. So we have, for example, people, who, students who want to write their final exams, whether in their junior secondary, their senior secondary, or people that want to write exams, you want know, to move on to other things, having been postponed. So, it's impacted a lot of things in education. And today we have with us a pharmacist turned educationist, founder and CEO of a social enterprise called STEMMES, um, and they focus on STEM education for children. Her name is Mrs. Jedi Adidiji. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Hope you're keeping safe. Um, hope everyone is well. Yeah. Do you want to just give us a brief background about yourself? I mean, I mentioned pharmacist turned educationist. How was that journey? How was that transition? You know, how, how did you make that move? Sure. Um, so I worked in the pharma industry for almost two decades. And, um, you know, of course, once you start having children, you start um, having a keen interest in education, you know, to be sure that the children are progressing the way they should, um, you know, developmentally. And um, so I moved back to Nigeria about a decade ago, actually, this year. And, um, you know, having been away for quite a while. And really was coming back to Nigeria, remembering the education that we had, particularly in our younger days um, and the quality of education that we had. And so coming back and having my own young children at school, um, coming from, you know, a different world and a different standard, it was obvious almost immediately that there was a huge gap in there, um, that we hadn't even really progressed curriculum-wise. We're probably using the same curriculum we used when I was a child. Um, so really, the, that gap was quite evident that we hadn't really moved with the times and the needs and requirements. And so with that, I started researching that, how can my children get the best of education uh, whilst being in Nigeria where there's a gap there. And so it was really research and online information to see, okay, at this age where we're coming from, what are they supposed to be learning? What are they supposed to be exposed to? And so it's in my research that I came across the concept of STEM education where that, you know, uh, multidisciplinary approach of using science, technology, engineering, and math to teach. Uh, it's a learning concept. And in that, there's certain skills that have been developed. Um, so it's very project-based. It's very doer-based as opposed to just theory and cramming. Uh, and in that, you're learning communication skills, team-building skills, reasoning skills, and you're not necessarily, you know, having to cram. You're learning by doing. 
and having two different kids one who is a learner by doing who really cramming you know you're just killing him basically and i saw him you know being more or less forced into that and realizing that someone that had such curiosity i could just see him you know more or less being drained away and losing interest in lots of things you know we threatened him that we'll take away his science books if he didn't go to bed you know and then went to someone who couldn't even be bothered to read a chapter so i could slowly see the change there and of course as a, as a mother you think you know i'm going to sit down and watch this happen so that's where the research in, in the stem came and you know so over the holidays i would try and orchestrate you know at least them getting involved in um some sort of after school or summer camp activity uh when we went away on holiday just at least let them get a taste of that even though they're normally in school in Nigeria and it was in, it was really one of those trips that I came across the program uh called Bricks for Kids which we eventually now brought to Nigeria and that's how the company started really I mean I expected that I would continue working in healthcare um but you know that's how my foray into education started so it probably came out of a personal need and I was thinking well you know if I can uh, afford to do this during the holidays I'm a minority the millions and millions of our kids in Nigeria will not get that opportunity so the idea behind stem nets was to bring that and try and attempt to use that to bridge the gap that we saw in the education sector particularly from a skills perspective and so that's how we started um 6 years ago now was it easy given up the, the discipline you had learned you know um most of your life and all of a sudden you just dropped everything Yeah I think it was an evolution really apparently the writing had been on the wall for years you know because I kind of had taken it as a side gig in terms of education research and just always you know schools education so really my friends would I was kind of the go to person in education oh you know do you know a tutor that can do this or do you know any books or can you refer so apparently the, it was quite obvious to my friends it wasn't obvious to me so eventually when I made that transitions a couple of them were like ah oh, finally you know you've been going on and on of this the light finally yeah i was i was like really yeah it was obvious I said, really because of course i was still trying to pursue the health and pharmacy that you know invested so much time efforts and my father's money in uh, sending me to school so i naturally and of course we have a healthcare issue as well but that's a different story for another time so i expected that, that that's where that i would be but um I suppose it was really just a path and it was I I felt I didn't feel as if I had given up anything to be honest it was just really a second career so to speak or a second uh lease on life so I done healthcare uh, I felt that I was really done in that area to be honest and it was really just giving to something else that's a huge problem in our nation so I I don't regret it. I think a few people do that gosh you wasted that pharmacy. I don't think so. I think I I gave it what it needed at the time in my life and um and I still feel that science is still in what I'm doing anyway. So I I really don't see it as a loss. So I've just evolved from one um aspect of science learning to te- trying to teach it. Maybe some of the students you're training or eventually um become Uh, going to the pharmaceutical line and developing well, that was like with my dad i said you know maybe that dream of this manufacturing uh, 
you know, guru that you, pharma manufacturing guru that you were dreaming of me. I said, maybe you'll be one of my kids from my programs. And I'm very happy for that to, to happen. So th that's the whole idea to inspire creativity and innovation. Um, so it's really just trying to maybe, you know, um, hand over the baton to another generation, really. And why not? Okay, um, could you just talk a bit about some of the programs that you do, just for context? So, we, we, so the idea behind what we're doing, like I said, is hands-on, project-based program. You know, we didn't want, it, it's not a school, you know, it's not like replication, it's not a remedial school either. It's using different tools to teach STEM concepts. So the first program that we started is called Bricks for Kids, and we use Lego as a learning tool. So there's an actual curriculum attached to it, uh, you know, there's a topic that's taught, only takes about 10 minutes to give you a summary of the topics. And then the kids have a, a model plan and they build relating to that topic. So say, for example, we've taught them about windmills, we've taught them about green energy and renewable energy. The kids will now build a windmill using, um, you know, the Lego bricks. And so those kits are specifically made for us. They're not the regular Lego that you buy in the store. Um, and so the children now make what they just learned uh, with the idea that well, while you're doing it, you're learning, you're working in teams, so you're learning uh, collaborative skill sets, uh, you're following a pattern, so you're learning how to think and processing and critical thinking and all of that. Um, and, and so that, that we use as a tool and it's fun. Kids love Lego, so they think they're playing, but they're actually learning as well. So again, it's been innovative in something that's been around for almost a hundred years, Lego, and using it in a different form. The other program that uh, we run, uh, that we've run in the last two years through our partnership with Airbus Foundation is uh, focusing on secondary school. So Bricks for Kids focuses on preschool and uh, primary. And so this is focusing on secondary school, bringing in robotics, computer science, electronics, um, again, developing those skill sets. And the partnership with Airbus is actually quite strategic on their part, uh, in the sense that they know that Africa and the Middle East have a very youthful population. And the idea for them is that, well, let's start developing the skill sets in these kids uh, with the idea that, well, coming back in 10, 15, 20 years to recruit from this market or having contributed to capacity building. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to be an engineer, you know, so they're, they're, they're planning to recruit from sales to marketing to aircraft to engineering. But the idea is that let's start instilling those skill sets. So I keep emphasizing skills and skills because, you know, some people might think, well, my child is, is more creative, is an artist or a lawyer. Well, these skills are transferable regardless of the sector that you go into. So I think that's a point to um, highlight here that it's on, you know, future workplace skills. What are the skills that are in demand in this 21st century work space and work environment? And how is that being embedded into our children's learning journey? And so those are the, the programs that we run. Um, and we also, from the technical and digital skills uh, part, we run quite a number of coding and programming um, uh, modules as well. Okay, thanks for that brief um, overview. I'm, I'm particularly fascinated with uh, the little engineers program, the one there was one and how they put, I mean, I'm, I love L, I love um, aviation, aircraft, stuff like, I could sit down and watch documentaries about them, the whole day. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I wish I could I could go and uh, partake in one of your lessons, but then people will call me. <laughs> but, um, Never know. It could be upscaling or rescaling. <laughs> well, maybe if you have something for adult education, maybe I'd consider yeah. it. If you were to say, what are your top three challenges running a social enterprise? I mean, you're in the education space. Education is naturally not known as a, um, a for-profit endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so basically, we're you know socially missioned uh, business. So we are for profits, you know. So I guess our biggest challenge is trying to explain who we are. And I think we even went through that identity crisis ourselves up until about three or four years ago that what are we? You know, we're not an NGO. We are for uh, for profits. We are a business. So we, we, you know, our sort of uh, driver's metrics for success is, you know, are we, are we making a profit? However, the sector that we're in is socially driven which is in education. So our focus is in education. Um, our, you know, um, mission is socially minded. How do we bridge the gap? How do we, you know, restore, bring some restoration in our uh, educational business? So our targets are, you know, fee paying people who can pay for our service and also people who can't. And so we run what you would imagine is a hybrid system where Partnerships like the Airbus Foundation that gives us grants and us to take our programs to the underserved community that can't afford our services otherwise. So if you can afford to pay for our program, you're welcome. If you cannot, which is again part of the challenge, is trying to always find grants and funds and partnerships that will enable us so that the um, disparity that there is in the educational system between those who are going to uh, high-end schools and those are not, which is, you know, the gap is huge. So that that is not further, that is not being further, you know, extended. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of people in that space, uh, mostly in the non-profit area, uh, in the non-profit sector, sorry. And so for us, we straddle uh, between both. Our dream is to be profitable enough where we'll be able to offer scholarships to, you know, children, in those underserved areas that can't afford to come to our program. So our challenge is always constantly, you know, how do we uh, ensure that we are profitable as a business, because we are a business, but also being mindful uh, for being able to serve those um, in communities that can afford our program. So we're always aware and mindful of that, ensuring that we're inclusive in that way. It hasn't been easy though. <laughs> Do you have numbers as to the amount of students you've been able to reach or train over the years in the past six years? Do you yeah, have so in the last six years, we've reached over 9,000 um, students. And I would say, you know, probably almost half of that has been being able to, um, through the partnership with Airbus Foundation. So we run our programs as after-school enrichment clubs. And during the holidays, we run camps as well. So we have our summer camp. Uh, coming up in the next three weeks or so um and so th those are uh, uh, fee paying programs and so uh, on the um, social side the grants that we received over the last two years from airbus enabled us to reach those students so overall about nine thousand children and we know that we barely scratched the surface but then you know um again trying to scale in the education sector you know, is, is, is fraught with challenges and it's really trying to see how we can manage that, uh, realizing that, you know, 
um, we may not be able to earn enough to be able to reach those students. So how do we, you know, plan our financial strategy and financial management so that we are able to receive grants, funding, partnerships, and have a sustainable revenue stream. So that that's this, you know, challenge that we've been trying to deal with over the last few years. And we're learning, you know, as we're going along as well. So we try things in sort of little experiments, uh, uh, prototype them, and, and try and identify the ones that we can scale up. But I mean, you so now on average, you're reaching what, 1,500 students per year um, uh, in the last six years. That's on average. Um, yeah, on average. Yes. So, um, but that has also exposed you to the larger um, um, challenges that exist within the educational space in Nigeria, which is your primary domain of operation. Um, uh, do you want to talk a bit about that? An overview of what what you think the educational space in Nigeria is. I mean, just for our listeners, you know, to try and understand that because you you did mention you're not a school, you're not a replacement for the regular school curriculum. You know? So it's almost like an um, like an enhanced an enhancement to the current curriculum and stuff. So, do you want to give us an idea, your own thoughts on what the educational space in Nigeria is? Well, you know, as we all know, and we've been complaining for decades about the quality of our education. Like I said, those of us who were lucky enough to have gone through the educational system when you know it was really at its best, I would say, know that they, we can't even compare it. I mean, growing up, I didn't know anyone that went to a private school. You know, we all went to government-run school. You know, you, you had to work hard to get into schools. And I remember all the common entrance, either the federal schools or, you know, the state-run school. I went to Methodist Girls High School in Yaba. You know, and I, I don't know anyone that went to a private school. Even primary school, I went to Command Children's School in Ikeja. You know, so a lot of us went to publicly run or government run institutions uh, and of course seeing the um, growth of the private school sector why you know it's obvious that a lot of us have departed or lost confidence in um, some of our state-run or um, government-run schools and we can see that so you know uh, what has caused that well you know quality of education quality of delivery uh, teachers, infrastructure, and so there's been a huge growth in the private school sector. Now, when most people think about private school, they think of the high-end schools. Um, but in Lagos State alone, 80%, up to 80% of the students actually go to low-cost private schools. Uh, so they are actually catering to the high majority of students here. So when we hear private school, they're different. I mean, there's a spectrum you know, from the high end to the ones that even pay daily. I think you were at our anniversary when we had uh, one of the ladies from Seeds there who was talking about there's some schools where they pay 50 Naira or 100 Naira per day. They pay daily. Yeah. So you have that variety of the ones paying a million a term to 50 Naira per day. And they still come under the auspices of uh, private schools. Um, they, you know, I, I, she reminded us that she doesn't like the word mushroom schools that because even within some of those low income private schools, you know, they're doing quite well in terms of their results um, um, and being able to really churn out students who are bright. And we've interacted some of them. So through the Air Force program, we've taken it to some of those low cost um, schools. And honestly, we have seen some of the brightest children 
commerce of those schools. Um, and so even Lagos themselves recognize that instead of punishing some of these schools, why, why don't we work with them and NGO organizations to improve the quality of these schools, knowing that the state's government schools themselves are not coping adequately with the population of children that they have. So I think collaboration also, we've seen that in evolving in the last little while that look, instead of us you know, closing these schools down, the ones that are willing uh, and are able, why don't we build them up? Because they are, you know, serving a purpose, actually, you know. So let's work on their curriculum. Let's work on the delivery uh, for them while still trying to sort out the mess that's going on in the state school. So the education sector as a whole, as we've seen, you know, there's a huge gap in, in terms of the types of schools, the quality of schools. Within those, there's a huge gap in content, in delivery, in teacher training, which is key. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, and I think unfortunately, unfortunately, this COVID has just brought everything. We've all been complaining for many, many years. Now it's like, okay, it's right in your face. You have to deal with it. There's no more sweeping under the carpet. At least I've seen in Lagos and Ubon states that the effort that's been made to try and ensure that learning continues during this time. So I, I, I think we can't afford to ignore things anymore. It's come to a fore now um, and needs to be addressed. It's the how and hoping that the momentum will continue and not fizzle out for something to be done. But I'm quite confident that Lagos State seems to be you know, dedicated, perhaps because of our commissioner who herself came from the private sector in education and was probably part of us that had been complaining. Now she is in government and, you know, okay, we're all looking up to you that, mind you, you we, we have high expectations. Yes. <laughs> no question, but, you know, we have very high expectations. And I think we've seen with some of the things they rolled out during this time that it appears of course, the problems are many, you know, there's school infrastructure, there's curriculum itself, which needs to be overhauled, you know, uh, there's teacher training, um, there's even the delivery of the, con you know, the problems are plentiful. So it will be interesting to see how they tackle all these different strands or how they prioritize it in terms of trying to deal with it. I understand how a parent is feeling, um, you know, at this point in time where they're thrown into it. And some parents are just completely blown away by the, 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 the exposure that COVID-19 has brought out in terms of how the learning has been taking place. Some parents are now considering and wondering what they've been paying for in terms of education in school. You know, now they're, they're faced with it directly to say, look, we're, we're seeing how these children are learning now. And, um, they're wondering what it is they've been doing in school um, all the while. So um, COVID-19 has brought about that, like you said, it's made it more visible that there's, number one, there's a lot of social inequality. Number two is the gap, even in the private schools as well. You know, I think that there's a, there's a massive gap technology-wise, uh, even in terms of teacher training or their delivery, the method of delivery in itself. And the schools also looking for innovative solutions to be able to appease the parents while also ensuring that the the children are, are, are well taken care of. What are your thoughts in terms of bridging some of these gaps? I know they're immense, there are a lot. 
and you've mentioned quite a number of them. What are your thoughts around bridging these gaps there? Um, yes, there's technology, but we can't have technology alone. I, I don't think so. I mean, you're, a, you're an insider. Uh, maybe you have a better perspective on that. Well, with what we've seen um, during this COVID era, we've seen, as you said, the quick response from the high-end school uh, who could re uh, respond quickly enough. And even within them, they were, they, they were even disparities. So the ones that you had high hopes for, you know, some of them were not prepared and were really all over the place. Uh, and while some of them, the particular school, that really they had even been on this digital learning path for months. So for them, they didn't even blink an eye. You know, their parents had been, tra been in training, the teachers had been in training. You know, this was before March. So in the preceding probably three to six months, they had been learn uh, working on a digital learning platform. So everybody was ready. So for them, they didn't even blink an eye and they have just been carrying on as normal. Some schools, you know, were kind of halfway there and were able to recover quite quickly. And some, some schools really struggled, I would say. Yeah, struggled. And some schools didn't even bother at all because they just didn't have the capacity in terms of re a human resource. They didn't have the financial resources and they really didn't bother. Some of our schools, which is why for me now, it's really, you know, looking at the inspiration and motivation behind the school owners. Because there's some of my schools in what you would consider some of the low end, and they have been fantastic in terms of how they've responded to this crisis. They're not charging their parents, but they're delivering content to their kids almost every day for a few hours a day, not charging them any school fees. They're bearing the cost of it for the sake of continuing the education and ensuring that the children are being catered for. So that's really on, uh, on the spectrum of private schools. Um, so that's high tech. So I know that low tech um, has also been employed. So through TV, delivery of content through TV, delivery of content through radio, and delivery of content even through WhatsApp groups. Of course, that assumes that one, those families have TVs and radios, because that's another thing I know some people were raising money to even buy radio. And secondly, TV assumes that they have constant electricity. So even if you're deploying innovative methods that are low-tech, the infrastructure deficit in the country in itself, you know, poses a huge challenge to your efforts. Do you know what I mean? Almighty power, for lack of a barrel. Exactly, you know. So there are just some things that you, you're constantly fighting against and you're constantly having, so what do you do? You know, so we still okay, don't have computer, okay, TV. But then they don't have electricity or haven't had electricity for three months. So what do you do? You know, so it's uh, it's a constant challenge, but I think it's innovation and creativity. So they're the ones that are doing it on WhatsApp. Again, that assumes that they have a phone that can have access to that, you know. So I think for us as a country, with each solution we kind of proffer, there, there's like a national infrastructure issue that we also have to try and work around uh, and be innovative with. So for me, I've seen that over these last few weeks, some commendable, and at least there's an effort and discussions have started and people are starting to think that, well, which I think is progress, to be honest, <laughs> you know, compared to we've just been talking all these number of decades. Now we've been provoked to um, innovation and creativity, whether we like it or not. And it's making the 
the those in power look bad so you know are they content with continuing to look bad or are they willing to you know start doing something about it finally and so that question remains to be answered uh over the next few months how things play out uh from this time onwards really and and, and and of course we haven't talked about the softer side of things i mean a lot of parents have work that they have to do so even the dedication the emotional support the presence of mind to be able to sit with the children or even help them or guide them through their work or their assignments is also on another skill entirely i mean if there are children who have been going to after school where they get help with their homework now they're the parents are saddled with that. Just before we go, I mean, I know you said a lot of things um, and I can pick out some things that but maybe you want to list out a few opportunities that you think that exist right now. Yeah, I, I think really now is, I see a lot of uh, opportunities for collaboration. I think within the educational sector, we're very, very fragmented and some of us are overlapping in what we're doing. Um, so for me, I see, you know, value in collaborative um, ventures and capacity so it could uh, a collective impact i think um so for example if i think of bridge academy whose focus has really been on low-end school and they've been using technology to do that that's their specialty i know they had done a project with legal states and Edo State as well. So let's let's look into deep links, such collaboration and partnership. They've been proved and tested all over Africa. Um, so from a low uh, low income perspective, let's try and see whether we can, you know, deepen that partnership so that that sector is catered for. In the uh, second tier or mid tier, and even for people like us that are enrichment classes. I think, again, collaboration is key in this time. The problem is enormous. You can't do it alone. But of course, I know from, you know, that, that trust element is an issue in terms of trying to reach out to other groups for collaborative efforts and impact. You know, I imagine if we can come together collaboratively, you know, with the content of what we have with our programs, we can even approach funders as a collective you know, that, you know what, instead of you're doing this in Ikeja, I'm doing this in, you know, Bagada or Leki, we're all kind of in that enrichment space. Is it possible for us to get together collectively, you know, agree on certain metrics or sectors that we're going to focus on and move as a group, you know, to even approach funders or even approach governments in terms of what well, let's... Yes, exactly. So there's the advocacy part of it and there's even the implementation part of it as well because there's a lot to do and then maybe government can focus on certain strands of, you know, the the challenges that we have. Um, so trust, I know, is a big thing which we don't have amongst each other um, as Nigerians, I'm, I'm afraid to say. But if we maybe look beyond our own needs and for the greater good, that maybe something can come out of it. And I know in, in previous times we've reached out to a couple of people due to this of suspicion that why why would you want to invite me into, you know, I've always said, I said there's enough to go around. There's plenty to do. I don't imagine that I'll do it alone, but we'll go further if we do it together. So some people have been receptive and some people have not. Um, but then, you know, how far are we getting in our individual silos as opposed to if we can come together. So for me, I think collaboration and really innovation in different things that we're doing. So for us, we've had to move everything online. 
So we've had to learn very quickly and try and adjust. And it's an experiment, you know. So we're launching our, our summer program all online because obviously the social distancing. And so it's a new experiment for us, um, you know, to try and use this platform to still continue, um, you know, with the learning and teaching. Competition, not competition. competition. Exactly. Partnerships were necessary um, to be able to, I mean, things like advocacy work best when you go in groups as opposed to individuals. Um, it's cheaper, it's more effective, there's a greater level of impact, and um, everybody's less stressed at the end of the day. It's been an interesting time with you. Thank you for spending some time to chat with us. I thank you so much for having me and uh, at least having this discussion. Um, I think there's still a lot to, you know, to be said and a lot to, and I think parents are in a position now to even push, um, you know, harder and better and um, challenge the value of what they are receiving from, from everyone. You know, they are paying, what are they paying for? And how can their own contribution and thoughts be taken seriously? It's been taken seriously now <laughs> that we're in this dilemma. Uh, why can that not be a norm? So that, that collaboration can also come from the parent perspective where the schools are open to that. Schools should have a listening ear and take feedback. You know, it's yep. working together to ensure that um, the children who are the, you know, the ultimate beneficiaries are um, are taken care of, are prepared appropriately uh, to be able to adapt to the times, essentially. Mm -hmm. Thank you once again um, for chatting with us today. This has been our edition of Blue Talks for today. Until next time, stay safe. Blue Talks. Brought to you by Stambic IBTC.